Hi guys, I'm Wesley Rashid. Thanks for tuning in to the Tech Startup Collective. It's in this podcast we explore some of the insider tips and some of the finest talking points from today's brightest tech startup founders. How they think, what makes them tick, and everything in between. Today, we have the founder of Lacquer, Tobias Talpitz, who's changing the face of the insure tech sector and certainly making it engaging and fun for everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Toby. Thanks, Wesley. So, Toby, tell us how it all started for you as an entrepreneur and why did you make the jump into the tech sector in the first place? With pleasure. So, my dad is to blame for all of this. He is an insurance broker home in Germany and I grew up with the topic at a dinner table and um, went through the hoops and apprenticeship, studied the topic, went away from it, started my career in corporate finance, KPMG in Barclays as of late, doing financial services M&A. And at some point, the two worlds, I should note, I covered fintech and insurance at the same time. The two worlds would come together and I started asking some silly questions. Why is it done like that? Could be done differently. And especially in insurance, I felt there's this huge disconnect between offerer and customer, a conflict of interest, so to speak. And that is because me as the insurance company, I take your premiums for many, many months down the line and might provide your service a bit later. That's fantastic for me as the insurer. It is really, really bad for the customer. I take your money and may or may not give you a service at a later stage. That was the starting point, And I started thinking, could we not reverse the whole proposition and do it slightly different so we all win? And that was where I thought, let's try it out. Let's give it a shot. And that's how you came to the decision of forming Lacquer. That was where the moment was born. It was back then still called insurer thing, very descriptive, very old fashioned. And yeah, I sat there over Christmas, I must have been um, in 2016, and um, yeah, in my best banker manner, started creating a template, choose all the fancy colors, created a pitch deck with, you know, look very fancy, and the startup was born. And I couldn't really let go of it. I started speaking to people in the industry. I snuck out every now and then, um, meeting other fellow insurtech entrepreneurs and consultants and people from the ecosystem. And I was the joke of the day within my team at Barclays because people thought I would go out, sneak out to interview with private equity firms and whatnot else. I did not. I had coffee with a consultant um, here and there. And that's how my network started to form and grow and how I tried to de-risk my proposition to really to learn, is there something in this idea? So just for the benefit of the audience, you've set up Lacquer and it's a UK company, but your accent is in English, right? I am indeed German. Um, you caught me out there. Um, I'm from the southwest Stuttgart and came over late 2013 to work for Barclays. Um, spent roughly three years down in Canary Wharf, locked away, chained to my desk, yeah. learned a lot. And yeah, at some point um, I felt I need a change. So for you, setting up a UK company, was there anything that enticed you to legally setting up a company in the UK versus going back to Germany and setting it up? There are a couple of things why I believe the UK is a fantastic environment, especially for the financial services industry. Picture this in the UK, in London particularly, you have all the financial services firms um, within two or three square miles. In Germany, they are spread across between Frankfurt, Berlin, Cologne, Munich, you name it. So I think it's just very easy to get round, to get the right buy-in from the right people. The ecosystem is very strong. Much more connected, I guess. Much more connected. The regulator is much more open um, here in the UK, not least because of something that's called FinTech Sandbox. We were part of an initiative to test new business models in a somewhat safe space, which doesn't exist in other European countries to date. Of course, the investment angle is also very important, um, not least because of what's called an EIS tax relief. 
Okay. Yeah. Great stuff. I mean, I guess the, all of those things, there'll be almost a tick box exercise for a company that's looking to scale in the UK, right? You want to take advantage of those schemes for sure. Is there any advice that you could give to tech founders, you know, making a similar jump to you? Loads and none at the same time. I think it's really trial and error and it's really about persistency and, and hanging in there. Um, an idea is worth very little next to nothing. People say it's all about execution. I would think you can do a lot while still being employed to de-risk your proposition. I keep on talking about de-risking as an insurance guy properly, but from setting up your company, from applying for advanced assurance to um, getting the buy in, forming a network, finding your team, there's a lot you can do on the side, but you don't have to make the jump straight away. Do your homework. The support network in the UK is phenomenal. There are loads of accelerator programs, initiatives left and right. If you look hard for the support, you will get it and you should really take people up on it. So let me just take you back now to the day when you kind of handed in your resignation, I mean, and decided to kind of pursue this idea. What was that moment like for you, you know, particularly when you set up Lacquer? Or at that time, it was insurer thing, right? But exactly. you get my point. So let me give you the 1% story and the 99% story. The 1% story was I was giving up a very, very comfortable work environment with, you know, great support from the silly stuff or not, um, health insurance, a decent salary, if not a good salary, all the amenities you could wish for, including, you know, dinner delivered to your desk and whatnot else, free taxi rides and whatnot else. So that was the one moment where I felt like, hmm, that's an interesting position. I still remember the day when I handed in my key card. It was super unspectacular. I was thinking that's kind of something like, you know, golden sparkles are coming down from the, from the ceiling, but there was nothing like that. Obviously, I had some drinks and people wished me well, but then the, you know, the door was shut and it, I was just another number, so to speak, leaving the bank onto the next thing. For me personally, it really obviously changed my life. All of a sudden, I was a guy at a kitchen table with an idea. Of course, I had spoken to a few people along the way, but still, you are kind of craving for milestones for support and really little things that count. I was lucky enough, I was able to sit in a co-working space. I got a free desk there. So all of a sudden I get out from my kitchen desk and meet people to see how other startups act. And, you know, you look up to those people with a team of five, for instance, you feel like, oh, they made it already. And, and little did I know back then that it was only the start, of course. But um, you really crave for every single point of approval almost from people who are knowledgeable and can help you along the way. So it was a really exciting moment for me, but um, it was only the starting point. And for a long time, I was a lonely wolf. I didn't have co-founders when I left. And I knew with all my limitations as a banker, I need other people who compliment me. And that was mainly a tech person and a product person as well. So I'm very, very lucky that um, I found two strong co-founders. And I would almost call it dating. You meet a lot of people you either like and they lack the qualities and vice versa. So I can only emphasize how important it is to take time, even if it's super frustrating, meet people, speak, go out there, tell people about your idea and all the very high likelihood they won't be able to walk away and copy it, be open and get the buy-in and the support from people. Ayla, I, I remember when you came into our office, actually, we had a chat. Uh, one of the things that struck me about you is that you were quite strategic in how you're planning things. And, um, you know, look where you are now. You've got a company that's scaled. So well done. But interestingly, maybe taking it up a notch in terms of strategic, what's your view on the insure tech landscape in London? What's your view on that? Because it's, it's a bit merging right now, isn't it? 
It is really emerging and one of the, I guess, so-called hot sectors because it's been overlooked for so long. There's a saying that InsurTech is trailing fintech by five years, if not longer, and partially because of a very complicated regulatory regime. So you really need to do your homework. It's not insurmountable. You can really get into it, but it's not as easy as setting up a marketplace, for instance. With that, in a very silly anecdote, I kind of like sharing. Um, we interviewed this intern and it turned out he refused us because he said insurance is not sexy. You want to go into audio or video. And I think that's the what we have to, to fight against. You know, a not very exciting industry. At the same time, that means money, right? Um, if everyone goes into one industry... That might be might be oversaturated very quickly and you need deep pockets to make a dent in insurance. It's still so much to be done. And I think there will be a lot of very cool companies emerging. It's a very young phenomenon, InsurTech in itself, but anything that helps raising awareness from resources to money, investment, talent, whatnot else will help developing great ideas. And I guess it gives you the opportunity to differentiate yourself where you do have a good product. And that leads on to Lacquer. I mean, at the top of this interview, you did talk about Lacquer, but as a bit of a refresh, can you describe what the company does and what's the problem that you're looking to solve? So first things first, we were set up initially as Insure a Thing, which is really, it is what it is and it is what it says, so to speak. But we decided we need something fresh, crisp, trendy and went with Lacquer, which is the Hawaiian goddess of prosperity and hula dancing. That usually um, puts a smile on people's face. Which Who came happen. up with that? I need to know. Uh, it was one of those silly things. I spent eight hours on a rainy Saturday on a website called gotchecker.com. Right. And I went through all the goddesses of the distant different societies from the Romans to the German Germanic gods to the Greeks and whatnot else. And the Hawaiian goddess of prosperity was a winner then. And I think it's a, it's a mix of domain and trademark. It makes it difficult these days especially if you have a short, crisp, four-letter kind of word, and it kind of grown on us, and we're very happy with that. I initially mentioned how insurance is misaligned in terms of incentives, so I take your money and I pay your service down the line. We feel we need to restart the customer relationship and do it a different way, and that I mean we pay out first and only collect money later on. And with that, you can introduce a lot more transparency and it's much fairer because we make money when we act in the customer's best interest, settling claims by adding a success fee, so to speak. Let me talk to a very concrete example, which make, might make um, things a little bit easier. Imagine we are all in a pub and I'm the waiter. I serve everyone in the pub drinks all night, which is the claim. At the end of the night, I get the tab, add my service charge on top, and then split the bill across everyone in the room. That's what we kind of apply to our insurance model. We don't charge upfront, we charge in arrears once we know how many claims were consumed in a month. And with that, you reverse the model, so to speak, and take all the good things and bad things, well, it's called the good things, in a box, reassemble that for a better outcome, where both people, both sides win, not just the insurer. That's great. What sort of things have you um, received in terms of feedback so far? As you can imagine, with a new business model and something um, encrusted as insurance, it took us a while to figure out the regulatory regime. We had to build a platform from scratch, find different partners. So we've been going for roughly um, one and a half years now, live for roughly six months now. And um, now it's really, really cool to see that the volume is coming through. You get actual customers, you get feedback from them. They communicate with us. 
to a web chat, to, to Facebook and whatnot else. Because what we did was we started with our first product, which is cover for high value bicycles for theft, damage and loss. And if you have a 3K bike, the listeners will know what the mindset is, right? Um, so we people go out for five hours right on a Sunday afternoon. They take really good care. And yet they are often thrown in a risk pool with um, an existing insurer next to the iPad and the washing machine and whatnot else. And it's not a great experience. And leaving the tech bit aside um, entirely at that stage. People really understand the community angle. So we say you are grouped with people like yourself avid cyclists. And that resonates with people, people saying, well, make sure the person is like me because I take good care and I deserve a better price for that. And anecdotally, what we do is basically we share the cost of claims at the end of the month. But if there is no claim, people pay nothing. And that's not just a saying in the first three months of the year, when people cycled less, admittingly, because it was cold and, and rainy and messy, people didn't pay anything. There was no claim. We didn't charge them. We sent out bills with a big fat zero on top and people loved that. In April, we had our first claim. We charged that and it was roughly half the price what the market would usually charge. And now we are on a, on a mission to collect more and more data and to refine that model. And one very important aspect of our business model is we went to a cycling fair and we asked people, how do you feel about sharing cost of claims at the end of the month? And they said, that's great, but what if there are many, many claims? Am I liable for outliers? And we could say, no, rest assured, we have a what's called a stop loss, a cap in place that's consumed by our partner, which is Zurich UK, an existing, very long-standing, reputable insurance company. They will jump in if all the bikes are washed across the coast. So you have a maximum price that's the worst price possible. And from here on, it's on the upside for you. And it's really up to you. If you take good care, you save money. Amazing. Great opportunity there. Hopefully. And one of the things I just asked them, what's the customer feedback? We have a guy in our risk pool and he wrote a blog post about our proposition. Go Google it and check it out. Um, his blog is called The Memel. Memel stands for middle-aged men in Lycra. And he wrote about us. And I think if we would have paid him, it could have not been nicer in terms of customer feedback. And those are the small little moments we really kind of really live for and, and thrive and really, really enjoy. That's great. Let's uh, talk about your team and what skills they bring to the table. Yeah. So I mentioned initially, I have a very narrow focus. I'm a former banker, so corporate finance, insurance is somewhat my sweet spot. And it was very important to me that I bring people on board that buy into the vision and compliment me. So we have Ben in my team. He's the tech co-founder, comes with roughly 17 years of experience building software platforms from scratch. And he's really in charge of the tech development. And since we have an open conversation here, I'm happy to share an anecdote that's a little bit embarrassing, but fun at the same time. So I come from a very structured background and we had this conversation when we started out telling him, Ben, let's set up a, a Gantt chart. I need to know when we kind of have our platform up and running and ready. And he looked at me saying, no. And I was like, what do you mean? No. How am I supposed to know when we're up and running? And he said, you're not supposed to, I'm agile. And I was like, what the hell is he talking about, right? And so that's where really the old world and the new world came together, collated or colluded a little bit, but we figured it out eventually. And it's, I had to become a little bit less corporate and he had to kind of move to my way a little bit, but I'm incredibly happy and, and, and grateful. My team is still stable and together. And I think that's one of the make or break moments in your early days as a startup founder, for whatever reason people might have to leave 
uh, might want to leave. And yeah, we are stable in that regard. We have a product person, Jens, in my team as well. We're looking at the customer journey, marketing aspect. Again, super, super important to understand what customers want and need. I think on the lead up time to going live, we interviewed um, roughly 100 cyclists. And really, we are not there yet by any standards. We still have to work on our value propositions, how we sell this, learn, tweak, iterate, fail quickly, all of the good stuff, right? All the buzzwords, so to speak. But we're on track there and we're making changes on the fly and adapt quickly. And with that, you have basically your core team. Um, we did very strategic and crucial hire early on. We added to the tech team because in a regulatory, regulated environment, Ben had to answer um, questions of the FCA, for instance. All of a sudden, nobody's coding and you spend a week on a kind of, what was it, 80, 80 questions, accountant, consultant style questionnaire. So we knew we need, again, a bit more manpower. So we added to the tech and since then added also someone in the design slash marketing space, a data scientist, not to be missed in nowadays tech world, of course. And also what I'm incredibly happy with is Laurent joined us. She used to be the head of regulatory affairs at XL Catlin, a very large insurance company, and adds a lot of credibility to our, you know, t-shirt culture and keeps us on our feet. And at the same time, we are fully um, at capacity and I just can't wait for the next people to join um, and, and help us building this. Uh, well, whilst you're considering your next hires, do, do you find it easy or hard to find talent? And what do you do to measure them? So initially, we looked in our first um, network, of course, and that was successful to a certain degree. Um, now we have actually a few job ads online. Go and have a look if you're interested on um, AngelList and um, work in startups and whatnot else, especially on the marketing front, on the partnership front. Our first product is cycling and we want to really get into the ecosystem. But LACA is more than cycling and I should stress that. And I'm, I think we're going to come to that a bit later. But marketing partnership in a B2C company are crucial. Adding um, to the tech team is crucial and a bit on the insurance side as well. So we have huge demand. Okay, let's think about a few takeaways for the audience. Has there been any extreme highs or any extreme lows that you've had since starting LACA? No, not at all. It was super easy going. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course. I think being a former banker plus being German, I'm not prone to, to emotions um, and really had to adopt um, quite a bit of the emotional roller coaster. I was going through a good email as a good day, a bad email, a bad day. So it really sounds a bit silly, but I really had to kind of find my, my inner peace in that regard. Otherwise, I would have gone crazy, probably. It's really interesting how you kind of become a bit numb in the corporate world and just, you know, pull through. And in the startup world, you're so emotionally engaged, which was very, very interesting for me personally on a journey. But of course, there have been loads of very good and very bad moments. Um, I think just the frequency is just super, super high. And, you know, we have a bad experience one day, next day is something big comes around the corner and makes up for it big time. So it's been very anyone, any, any one example that kind of stands out for you, either extreme high or extreme low? The extreme lows is probably a series of smaller things. So all of these things I think you can overcome if you think pragmatic. Um, when the FCA told us you have to go a different direction where we felt like, okay, we've talked about a different regulatory regime for quite a while. And um, when an investor pulls out is annoying, of course, all these little things that, you know, in the in the first moment really ruin your day. But in hindsight, are just a small dent along the way. 
on the positive side, they are amplified by magnitude and really stick in your head. When a person says yes to join the team um, and you manage to convince someone you really feel they could add to the team and bias into this craziness, that's a, an absolute fascinating moment. And um, one of the, I think, for our company's game-changing moment was as well, and we might get into that in a second, we found, we came across someone who believes in Laka and pushes us to the point that we are going to set up shop in Southeast Asia very soon. Wow. And okay. that's obviously a defining moment where you kind of think, should we go that route or not? But we decided to go all in. Can we take that credit at the uh, Tech Startup Collective here that that is a headline? Um, is this published information? It is not yet published information. It will be on the 1st of June. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> but I can talk about it in broader terms. That's helpful. So from your situation where you've stepped into this world and I guess you would call yourself a non-technical founder, how important do you think it is to have a tech background in order to be successful? I personally think you don't have to have one, but you should have someone in your team who has or someone you trust in your network who can advise you on it. So I struggled early on quite a bit to assess the different technologies that are out there, um, programming languages, what's efficient, what not. Obviously, you can outsource um, your prototype to a remote team, but you have no idea whether technologies they use is any good. So I was struggling quite a bit there and I didn't lift a finger, so to speak, in that regard until I had my co-founder and I told him, that's your topic. I'll trust your advice and your opinion here. It's super, super hard if you, you know, to choose what to take, right? And starts from the hosting space. What cloud do you use um, to the different languages out there, different ways to set up? Yeah, it's very hard to assess if you come from the business side of things. But I think there are a lot of programs out there. There's a lot of ways out there to meet tech people. It's a numbers game. It's like dating, <laughs> right? Um, and I think that's what I'm, what I'm mo most happy about is finding my two co-founders um, who really complement me well. And yeah, I think of the proudest moments in startup life was when we were part of Startup Bootcamp and Showtech, the accelerator program. But in the lead up to that, we went to the selection days where they had 23 startups joining and we had to pitch our story over and over and over every 30 minutes to another room and another audience. And um, my two co-founders only joined me a week or two before. But we sat there and they pitched the idea as it were, were theirs. And that was just such a broad moment for me that really someone really buys into the silly, stupid thing that you came up with. And that was really great to see. And um, yeah, one of the, the, the small moments that really kind of made this experience so special so far. So you did touch on um, Startup Bootcamp. So you preempted a question I was going to have for you there. What value did that accelerator bring you? Tons. I think everyone needs to assess what stage they are at if it's for them. As you may know, many of these programs take a bit of equity for you in return for certain services. It hurts much more if you're five years down the line, but then necessarily you're not, um, not, you don't need these, um, these services anyways. But for us, we came out as a new team in November. We didn't have a single line of code. When we interviewed with them, and I'm sharing another secret with you, but they asked, how far along are you in your journey? And we just said, we go live in May. And nobody challenged that, luckily. <laughs> so we didn't have anything other than a shiny pitch deck and, you know, a huge appetite to make this work. And for us, it was just so spot on because you go to different learnings in a bootcamp. You have multiple sessions from MVP, value propositions, how to build a network, how to attract investors, 
So all the lessons um, were spot on for me. I heard sometimes for the first time and we could really integrate them on a weekly basis. It got to the point and you need to really hard prioritize. You can easily distract yourself. There's a lot of offers there to meet people, to, to listen to, to certain sessions and you need to make sure you don't, your work doesn't fall through and come short. But for me, it was the, the right time and the right thing to do, especially since we come with a new business model that's been unproven or it's not proven so far. So it was a big, big validation point for me when I think there were 700 applications in the insurtech space. They invite 23 to the program to present and eventually 10 were accepted to the program. Someone gave us a stamp. There might be something in it. And um, that helped us, you know, accelerating the long, long standard. That's great. So taking your experience away from, from that experience, what advice can you give for aspiring entrepreneurs that are trying to get onto something like an accelerator? I think it's absolutely worthwhile. There are loads of different offerings nowadays, some cost equity, some not, some are better than others, some give you money, some don't. I think there's more generic advice. The UK, especially if you're fortunate enough to be based in London, there's a big, big ecosystem of support. Look hard for it. There are websites that talk about the different offerings and make use of it. So it doesn't come just down just to, to accelerator programs. They are one important pillar of it, but there's much, much more beyond. And as, as simple as networking events to meet the right people, angel investors, advisors, and whatnot else, it's all out there and up for grabs. Don't be shy. Um, people will tell you usually when it's too much or won't respond any longer, but often people want help and want to help and don't stress out too much about compensating them in your early days. There will be a time down the line if you want to continue working with them. But generally, I was really overwhelmed with the level of support that is out there um, from legal advice, accounting advice, of course. And more often than not, and that's also something I'm not very used to, um, not very good at asking for help. I was astonished how often people are willing to invest in a relationship and giving you a discount in the early days in the hope, you know, a few of us will continue on the journey and then pay fair rates down the line, which is a win-win for both sides, hopefully. And it's a huge, huge relief for constrained budgets early on. Where are you in terms of fundraising right now? And in terms of fundraising so far, how hard has it been? Taking a deep breath here first. So I think in the UK, not least because of certain tax reliefs for investors, angel investment is available. It's actually quite generous, at least for the first 150K, if not more. And if you meet enough people, you will get your first 100K ticket or whatnot else in quotation marks fairly easily. Um, speak to 100 people and 10 will maybe give you money if you have a thought through deck. I think when you sell people on the vision, it's very much possible. And we've gone that way. We told people what we're trying to accomplish with many, many question marks. And we raised roughly 250k that way. And that got us going for a certain amount of time. It took us probably half a year before we managed to pay us a salary that covers our rent, at least. And that's a tricky thing, I guess. I was fortunate enough with banking to save some money. It's actually quite quite difficult in your early days of your career to to sustain a year without a salary. So I think it's only fair to to raise a little bit of money to keep to cover costs. I think the the biggest stepping stone is then you know to build uh, an MVP to get your first customer traction and then to raise a larger ticket a seed round. 
especially in B2C insurance, where you need to have a license in place, an underwriting partner in all likelihood. It's incredibly difficult in my mind. Investors have yet to catch up on the insurtech wave and how to assess a company like us. Of course, you can compare us to a SaaS business model, a marketplace, and we would fall short in any comparison because we just made our first revenue after going for close to two years, right? And it's just incredibly difficult to get to the starting line. Having said that, once you have overcome the hoops, you have a bit of protection because it's not that easy and a good head start. Where we are at now in terms of fundraising, we are in the final stretches of announcing our seed round, which is going to be roughly $1 million. We're stellar investors who will help us beyond just the money. I mean, I can sincerely say that. And yeah, that's just a very exciting world for us um, to add to the people strategically and add to the team strategically, um, marketing partnerships, tech, of the good stuff. We've been falling short as of late and actually, yeah, taking a very important step in our life. Having said that, and I think that's the brutal point someone revealed to me, once you have made it to the seed round, the clock is ticking to the next round. And it is incredibly hard, if not impossible, to raise a Series A round on a vision. I think it now it's a time where it really starts that the unit economics will count, the traction will count. So you need to create these numbers. In a seed round, still, you have the benefit of a doubt. You can still sell people on what you will accomplish. Um, you need to deliver in a series A round. So I think it's by no means now, you know, legs up and an easy life. But yeah, I'll be happy to report back in 18 months time how that went. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's very much a case of moving the goalposts now. And um, obviously when you when you receive larger tickets, things become a lot more serious. I'm not saying that it isn't wasn't serious in the first place, but you've got a real business there. It sounds almost like that, which is super exciting. And yeah, you can really accomplish things that you can't do um, when you're bootstrapping, right? And it's always a trade-off. Do you want to spend 5K more in marketing or do you pay next month rent? And I'm not sure if I should tell it out loud, but I think there were a few moments if I would have paid all my invoices in my inbox, including yours probably, I would have gone, um, would not sit here. But you know, it's it's this kind of very first year is very fragile. And there are ways around it more often than not. And I'm very, very happy that we're now in a position to kind of, well, it's not rough sea anymore, but it's still the open ocean. We still have a lot, a long way to go, but it's exciting that we have the means and the tools now to do so. Yeah, that's great. I think that's really insightful, uh, particularly for founders going through a similar journey to yours. And that's why the Tech Startup Collective is here, essentially. So thanks for that. But I will ask a question on your fundraising journey. I mean, how have you managed to divvy up being able to manage the company whilst fundraising? I can't stress the importance of having a, a solid founding team. In the beginning, I was always thinking, you know, um, I'm the lonely wolf. I can manage all by myself. The answer is, uh, the reality is it's probably not possible. There are so many topics you need to take care of. So whilst I'm out fundraising, my team, Jens and Ben and, and the rest, um, continue building a product and selling part of my job is actually being out there meeting people and doing fundraising so if you start with a team of three naturally you have two people who can actually do work whilst you are out you know trying to sell work that has not been done yet and that was incredibly helpful that we're not too thin stretched for a kind of newly founded company it has changed now a little bit and i think you need to be a little bit more selective and how you how you spend your time prioritizing um, to the extent possible. 
But you know, it, you would be foolish not chase any potential investors, right? Even though it's unlikely and startup is all about being romantically optimistic. And if you, if you start with on a negative tone, chasing investors, then you might as well not do it in the first place. So that it comes with disappointment when you feel like people promise you to put money in your company because it will allow you to go another two or three months and run in runway at the same time. And I think that's, it's a numbers game. And there are a lot of events, a lot of people are inherently interested um, in startups with the tax relief. It's manageable for some seniors to put in 10K, they get 5K back in tax relief and whatnot else. So it's not the nicest of all tasks to speak to 100 angel investors in the hope that five or 10 will put in money, but it's out there. And in terms of dividing up my tasks, I think my role as as I guess the, the CEO will always be fundraising investor relations to a certain degree and managing the relationships that we have built up. So I think it just comes as part of the role description or job description. Is there anything that you would do differently looking back? Tons. <laughs> Tons. I think um, there are so many things where you feel like we could have been much more efficient. Again, another little, little silly anecdote. One person told me, I'm going to invest in your startup but only if you promise me that I'm allowed to invest in your next startup as well. And I was thinking, hang on, what is he talking about? I'm just starting with my first one, right? Why would I think about a second one? And it kind of let, let, let it sink in a little bit. I thought it was a really smart comment because in my next startup, if there's ever going to be one, possibly, there will be a lot of mistakes I will avoid. Uh, so it was, after all, a very insightful moment for me Um um, that comment, but there are a lot of things in terms of admin. Um, how can you set up your company more efficient? We probably lost a month or two in the back and forth with the regulator, for instance, partially driven by us as well, because we hung on to an idea where we felt like, okay, we should go one way instead of just settling and going for it and, and, you know, getting customer proof points first. There will be always things. And sometimes you think back and think we could have been three, four, five months earlier to the market. At the same time, you had more time to build something else, right? And, and you probably learned something along the way. So I guess double-edged sport. So let's talk about the tech. Talk to us about the platform and the functionality it has without giving away anything sensitive. What we decided to build is a web-based app. We believe that a native app, for us at least, was too costly in our early days. So we wanted to keep it easily accessible from desktop and phone, built on the cheap which works very well for us. We've been building it with basically one and a half to two tech people because one person was frequently out to comply with regulatory requirements. And um, there are loads of things from meeting investors and whatnot else that dis distract you. But our first MVP, which is currently online on laka.co.uk, um, basically allows customers to get a quote, a personal cap, the maximum price I mentioned earlier, and you then jump into the web app um, you can add your bicycles as an inventory. You can go all the way to activating your policy. Um, you can admin your, your, your contracts and you can also do the claims handling on our platform. So, um, it's all in one solution, which we built. And that's basically the, the, the client facing part of a lot of backend work, um, of course, but that's the necessity we had to build. And I think we're now moving on to the exciting stuff. What LACA is also about is moving away from very objective criteria like underwriting by the postcode, for instance. In my mind is that it's all about behavior, how you take care of your belongings, your items should be reflected in your price. 
And um, if you live in Elephant and Castle, but take super good care of your bike, you should pay less than living in Richmond and never lock your bike, for instance, right? Common sense. And that is what's coming through in our platform. We are building a behavioral risk scorecard in the background. So when you come to my platform, we will have certain data points from the IP address you're logging in from to um, the social media use. You can log in with Facebook and Strava, for instance. Strava is one of the largest, the leading um, cycling platforms with an API where you can get some data, how often you cycle, what routes and whatnot else, which is really insightful for us. And we learn about the customer and we will be able to distinguish between let's call it a silver and a gold risk pool. So if we know you well or well enough, we can put you in a gold pool where all the conscientious people are grouped together. They have less claims and pay less. So we reward you for sharing the data. And we want to get to a point where we don't know you. You come to the platform, we can immediately assess you. You should be in a new joiner pool for a little while, sit on the bench until you get a better price. And um, the silver, the gold pool and that risk score card is something quite exciting we are, we are working on. Risk tiering is, I think, the best word. So that's in store for the future. We have begun with it, but yeah, it's, um, as, as all the listeners will know, it's a numbers game. You need a lot of data to train an algorithm. And yeah, as a young startup, we're craving for every single data point we can get. And now more and more we um, meet partners we can work with, we can feed the database with, and that will be very interesting to see what the machine tells us. It's quite easy to make assumptions much, much harder to accept what the machine tells you and interpret it accordingly. Uh, is there anything you want to say to the community? Yeah, by all means. So any active cyclists, please check us out. Laka.co.uk would love to have you coming to our platform. And um, we're all about cyclists at the moment. We will branch out to further products. Any ideas, suggestions, tips, please come and talk to us. Um, we are approachable. We have a web chat on our platform. Um, yeah, any support, much appreciated. Great stuff. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Just one final comment from you, if that's okay, Toby. Is there any one tip that stands out that you can offer the listeners on any subject that you can think of? I think I stressed it once or twice before. Seek out support from the ecosystem. There's plenty out there. Don't be shy. People are willing to help to give you a hand and take them up on it. Great stuff. Okay, guys, thanks for tuning into the Tech Startup Collective. I'm Wesley Rashid with Tobias Taupis from LACA. Thanks for having me, Wesley.